0: I'm very amazed by your ability to take a song and then do lots of super interesting things with it, go on a journey with that song, but still serve the song. So the actual qualities of the song are always upheld, but you're very, very creative with it. Uh, And one thing that always comes to mind at first is um, I love your collaboration with Herbie and the Metropole Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And uh, the song I always have to think first of is your amazing arrangement of Maiden Voyage. And I was wondering what your approach was to to that song that everybody knows so well and that offers a lot of freedom but not a lot of written stuff. It's, It's very open. But what you did with it, to me, it sounded a little bit like what Herbie sometimes does when he plays an intro to that song. Right.
1: Right. Well, that's, as I recall, actually how that piece came about, that he, I believe, gave me some of his improvisations on that piece. And I think that some parts of it had to do with some of his improvisations that I heard, you know, folding it back into the form of the piece. But for Herbie, it's been the the projects that we've done together have, have been this delicate dance between creating a structure for him to improvise over, but not having so much content that he was unable to to create on the spot what he felt was was the proper, you know, uh, commentary and dialogue with what was going on in the orchestra. So that that's a tall order, obviously, because you have an orchestra there and they need the structure they need the information, you know, the content stuff that they have to to understand. But at the same time, we're we're providing a canvas for an improviser, and so that particular piece had a lot of space to it, and it was. You know, When we got into the meat of the, of the improvisatory sections, it was all about uh, color and building energy to you know, from, from one place to another. Right. So when I'm laying out a piece, uh, especially something that, that's geared more toward improvisation, it really is about, well, where's the energy now? And, and where do I want it to be? And how am I going to use the orchestra to put that kind of scenario together? Mm. And sometimes the energy is this way at the end, as it was with the, with the Maiden Voyage uh, arrangement, or sometimes it's at the beginning or so, sometimes there isn't too much of a huge moment uh, of, of high energy in a piece. and It's part of the decision process that, that we have to, mm. to decide how we're going to, to manage our energy. The Maiden Voyage piece, I believe, had one big moment that was the send off to the to the main changes of the song. But otherwise I was sort of extrapolating different modes of expression over a bass line. I I forget exactly what what it is at the end of that.
0: In a way it seems a little bit more long form, you know, than the actual song is, you took uh, the basic rhythmic information and what you just talked about from the solo recordings that he sent you, it's, it's great to know, it's great to know for me, but then you took it and kind of moved out of the 32-bar form. Mm-hmm. To me, it feels like an endless form until you go into the to the blowing for, for Herbie. You know?
1: and, right, Yeah. right. And then the beginning part, as I recall, was a fairly long orchestral introduction yeah. before he even came in.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, and so we did a couple of pieces that were sort of like that. And I think maybe on one of those concerts, the North Sea concert, we did an arrangement of footprints Oh. That he asked me to do. I have that. Yeah, and that we did that on a North Sea concert, mm. and that was actually a exercise that I had of finding two or three performances of solo piano footprints of his, and cobbling them together mm. into one long piece, and then I orchestrated it. All right. So that was a, a, a little bit of a strange exercise for Herbie because he was having to learn a part <laughs> to play that it's he had better, originally improvised. Yeah, right. Now, and you know, the ironic thing is that it you know, was easier for him to improvise it than to, to have to read it again. <laughs> right,
0: of course, yeah.
1: But um, that's the business we've chosen.
0: Yeah, right. I feel like transcription is a big part of, of your method in a way, of your process. Uh, incorporating something that we have maybe heard somewhere else and then taking it as a jumping off point for arrangement, you mm. know. I right? have to think about your all blues arrangement. Mm. There's a moment where you kind of take something from the Bill Evans uh, uh, comping. Right. Uh, and uh, I love that. I also want to talk, to talk to you about the in a silent way recording right. with uh, Zavin where you take his, his right. intro from the 8.30 recording. Right. So is like transcription something that you always do no matter if you're uh, thinking about an arrangement Um, or is it more uh, as a means to
1: to get somewhere or? The the short answer to the question is no. Mm. I don't actually think a lot about transcriptions when I'm working but the four pieces that that, that we're talking about uh, including the last one that you mentioned uh, all have a historic basis that makes us think that this piece is something that we should pay attention to and maybe uh, create a world that, or a different point of view on the, on the piece. But all of those pieces do have a historical perspective that I respect mm-hmm. and like to see that some elements of the original version of it uh, might appear in the new version to give us some point of departure. So, you know, you say the word made in Voyage and, you know, automatically a certain thing comes into your head, the bass line, the chords, you know, you know footprints, uh, the bass line, of course, uh, and then all blues. That recording on, on Kind of Blue is a historic musical moment. And so to ignore that, I think, would be a mistake. So that's, that's why I think that transcription is important. In that respect, um, you know, I did an arrangement of Dream Clock Mm -hmm. another piece uh, of Zavinil's for uh, Peter Ruskin's record and we did it again, uh, the Fast City record, and I did a a full transcription of that piece too because I wanted to be true to the piece to be able to understand the harmonic language properly and I was lucky enough to be working with Joe at the time and he approved it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to the point where I could say, okay, well, I understand now the language and now I can go and do what I want to do.
0: Can you maybe go further into that? So what what were your findings when you, uh, when you say that uh, you uh, got more understanding of, about his harmonic language or that particular piece?
1: Well it's important to to see that as much as we saw Joe's music in the, you know, filter of, you know, weather report and synths, use of electronics. and organic forms and all of the things that were very influential to my writing. You know, when you get deep down into, you know, the uh, you know, uh, the first uh, dream clock chord. That's, that's Ellington, you know, and so when you hear Joe's you know, right hand voicings or his his, yeah. his two hand voicings. You know, you can almost hear the Ellington band. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, playing that. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of revelations that you get from from stepping inside of somebody's music and getting the, the details, and then you go, oh well, okay. He's he was checking out those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, he was checking out certain pianists that gave him the shapes, and from there he you know saw how he orchestrated the. The electronics, and, but there was always a sense of that traditional harmonic language right. that was, I think, unique to Ellington and, and people that were, you know, influenced by you know, him. Mm-hmm. And, and Brookmeyer, you know, at first when you when I listened to the Weather Report records, I was digging on the energy and the improvisation and the forms and the amazing, you know, electronics mm-hmm. and the, the synthesizers he was using. But then you start actually looking at the chords that he was putting down, and how they interfaced with Wayne's playing, who uh, at the time I didn't understand. But later on, when you go to actually listen to, to you know Wayne's work with uh, with Miles and, and then his solo records to see what uh, you know Wayne calls the mission, mm. you know, his mission, and then you can see what that lineage is about too, and how he contributed. That voice to the band. Right. And then, you know, Jocko's lineage as a bass player and who he was checking out, and Pete's work with, with large ensembles and, and how he brought that into the mix. So, knowing the lineage of those four players at the time gave me a window into, you know, how that music was put together. And then understanding that gave me the ability to kind of go and do my own thing. Mm. And so, if I see pieces of music like that that have a historical basis, then it would be silly to ignore that. And in the end, I think it, it gives you problems when you're trying to do your own thing. And right, you, yeah. you don't realize what that structure is about, mm-hmm. and are trying to, to have another point of view of that structure. Uh, you can't have a point of view of something you don't understand. It's
0: completely it's right, thing. yeah. I think it also brings us back to like Gil uh, using uh, parts of Ahmad Jamal's uh, solos, right. or his his right, blues, right, or, like in in uh, New Roomba, right. transcribing actual solos or yeah. uh, melody parts from from those recordings, and bringing it in for Miles to play or for for right. the sections to play. Right. I always found it very yeah. uh, thrilling to hear that back when you then when I just discovered the original Maybe recording, it. I was like, oh, that's it. that's where it's coming from.
1: Yeah, you know, but you know Gil's. Uh, The background as a writer for Thornhill and and how that music developed was so interesting you know how that world was really you know they use the word workshops now you know but the the group of of writers that you know post Thornhill were trying to find a new sound but it it still had a certain sound to it that the understood to have an important lineage mm. uh, then, then you can start putting your own you know secret sauce in there right yeah you know, so the understanding of, of the, the basis of those chords helps you
0: mm. Mm. can we talk a little bit about uh, working together with Joni? and it's some of my favorite records from here i mean i love everything that she's done but, you know, both sides now and Lock and some deep records, and uh, uh, you're all over them. And I was wondering what your approach was then for, for these kind of, her, her standard tunes, but then also standard tunes, like one of my favorite arrangements is uh, you've changed. Right. I'm really interested in your process. How yeah. You,
1: well, um, that is, you know, speaking your transcriptions, that's a similar approach that, that we took with the first... Record the both sides now. Record that the songs that Larry and Joni chose for the record had something to do with her vision of the narrative mm. of finding love, new love, the excitement of new love, passion, disillusionment, mm. and uh, you know, the, you know the rest of the story. You know for, <laughs> you, that, that uh, the love falls apart and the heartbreak and all the rest of it, and then at the end, putting one of her songs in about. Um, I've seen love from both sides now, and then the last piece is, you know, I think I'm in love again. Yeah. Then you're off to the races one more time and, and, you know, the end of the record is, is the message for you. In that context, they chose particular songs to represent various emotions or states and so one by one, Larry and I chose a point of departure based on a particular stylistic. Mm. And we thought that was sort of the easiest way of, of going about how we were going to, to frame the, the picture. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so we designed instrumentation of the record based on, on what we thought our points of departure would be. And so some songs would be uh, Strauss, and other songs would be Brahms, and other songs would be uh, Gil Evans, and other songs would be, uh, you know, Hollywood, uh, you know, nineteen thirties sound. Uh, mm-hmm. So each song really had its own feeling to it, based on that. And and so I I needed to go and you know warm up to Brahms and you know get my Strauss chops together <laughs> and and um, and do that for a while or or kind of study Gill a little bit and kind of do that for a little while and see, you know, what, you know, how would we do that using these colors. And so for You've Changed, I wanted to, as, as with all of these songs, get into the emotion of the meaning of the lyric, hmm. you know, and, and what I wanted the audience to feel about, you know, what I thought the lyrics meant. And so that You've Changed piece, of course, was a, a terrible realization on, on the part of one lover to another that uh, that maybe this isn't the you know the magical relationship that I thought it was because you've changed you know, the sparkle in your eye is gone. And mm-hmm. Love is like a careless Theon. yawn right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so to me we could say, okay, yeah, uh, it's a drag. Um, it's not going to happen. See you. Yeah, but. It's more exciting for me to think that this is the most tragic thing ever. Yeah. That maybe this is the last time I could ever think about falling in love and now it's it's going to be over. Yeah. And that gave me more musical opportunities than just saying, yeah, well, all right, whatever, we're done, bye. Yeah. You know? And so this piece had to really have a certain hyper-romantic uh, I should say, you know, post-romantic harmonic vocabulary, um, a, a lot of big lyrical sweeping string lines, uh, a lot of chromaticism.
0: Right. I was going to say because you know, the, sorry for interrupting, but the the, the the harmony usually is approached like, I think you played in D-flat, so it's D-flat major and then G half to C7, F, B-flat, you know, Having this kind of cycle, you, I think, approached it from the chromatic point of view. Right. Having these functions of those chords, but having a, in a, in a descending chromatic fall. Right. Chords. And it, right. So, so that is reflective of of the feelings that you talked about. Right. It's like the f- falling,
1: and you can't really find the ground. You know. That's right. Yeah. And I, I sort of, I was vibing off of those uh, old nineteen uh, forties. Romantic, you know, weathering heights feeling where the you know every other chord was like, yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, you can just sort of hear the you know the longing or the pain and right. you know that's how the, the you know Italian opera composers uh, played pain and you know, it was. And so I wanted to, to use that harmonic language to express this disastrous feeling that the, the person that I love deeply doesn't love me anymore. That's part one. Part two, of course, the, the execution of it had to do with thinking a lot more in a linear fashion with the orchestra. that. Is what chromaticism is really about. You know, it's not moving a note inside of a chord. It's it's going from one place in a melody to another place in a melody, and the relationship between that voice and another one. So uh, when I'm writing that type of music, I think about the motion of voices, and of course, this is all in context with the vocal and how that works in too. But that language for me was very important. Right, and that piece, and the language of chromaticism was part of the emotion of that yeah. of that one song. Um, how do you deal with the day to day
0: process of having to write? You know, I mean, what's fascinating about how people like you start the process? You know, sometimes we have to write, but you don't feel like it, or you don't you don't feel inspired. How do you deal with it?
1: Well, it's a lot easier for me if I'm working with a... With an extra musical element, for example, if it's, if it's a lyric or a song that I have to work with, if I have a particular emotion that I'm trying to evoke, then it's easier for me to get into character, mm-hmm. as we say. That this is a, this is a very sad lyric and, and now I'm going to you know, see if I can embrace that. Right. That's a little bit easier than saying I have to write a piece for this orchestra and it's due next month. Yeah and that's a, that's a whole other process for me that that will start with a lot of improvisations and trial and error and scribbling and improvising improvising at the piano yes uh, or on the synth or some you know guitar or you know, pull mm-hmm. out the trumpet or you know sing into a tape recorder uh, right. get out paper and just start writing stuff yeah without regard to whether I like it or whether I can use it mm-hmm. or what it's gonna be like. Yeah. Um, I don't think all that much about that mm. uh, because it really sort of shuts down our ability to write. Or I'd rather just be in the process of, of creation and, mm. and have it come from here. Yeah. And you know, let the you know the music that I've studied inform my improvisations in the best best way I can. Mm. And then when I'm done with that, I will look at what I wrote and ask myself, you know, what's this piece going to be about? Yeah, and find out what fits and what I need to change, what I need to make longer or shorter, turn upside down, and backwards and, and yeah. you know, what melody is really great and maybe I'll take one percent of everything and throw everything else out mm. and work with that. I found that to be the most inspiring way of approaching it over the years, if I start working like a a short order cook, then then I think it gets sort of depressing. You know. Yeah. I'm going to start my violin piece now. Yeah. Right. And I would rather know that I'm writing a violin piece, but first, let me spend some time and you know, play around and find some directions and ideas without really focusing too much on it. And, and then, you know, let the t- technique take over. Mm. And So the, the, the writer's block thing is that and not everything that you write is going to be great, yeah. uh, but the technique part of it helps you to make it better,
0: mm.
1: you know, to work on the music that you wrote, to make it more engaging, to, to give it more depth, to give it more color, to make it more you know, accessible to the musicians uh, in your language, uh, to communicate your ideas better. Um, and I say that to my students too you come in with it with a little thing like that and then the rest of it they threw out but the thing is that maybe you threw out something that you could have worked with
0: right yeah
1: to make better it could be that maybe this part over here that you saw that you can go oh man that's really terrible or you can go well i just need to kind of make this melody better and change these chords over here oh yeah I, okay, I can work with that. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Instead of going, and forget it.
0: Yeah. I read this thing about John Cage saying, always oh, save everything. Uh. And I think it's very cool because sometimes I have the same feeling. I go back to something that I thought was bad or uninteresting. And I think, oh, if I just had changed this one now, it right. would have been no whole other story. Or if I would turn the page upside down, you know? Right. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know? And then you sometimes find out that, it's also a matter of how you feel in a particular moment and then, you you have the judgmental thing going and then right. it can't be good enough for
1: us. Yeah. And it's hard when you know it has to be done tomorrow Yeah, and maybe it's not as great as you want it to be, but you do have until tomorrow to make it better, mm-hmm. you know? So we need to know what to do to make it better. Yeah, That's where our technique comes in handy. Mm-hmm.
0: My favorite record of yours is Epiphany. And, I uh, like yeah. you know, I've been listening to them for a long time. And I think when I first heard it, I listened to it for the whole summer, mm-hmm. I was still- Oh, John's on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was still, I was, um, I, maybe it was one year after I found out about John, I was maybe 16 or 17 and I was, I was all about JT. And right. So I found out, oh, he's, he's playing on that record. Let's right. check it out. Oh, that's the same mm-hmm. arranger then from the post has now, that right. my mother likes so much, you know. Yeah. So I made the connection, checked out that record and listen to it for a whole summer. Um, oh, and thank you. still go back to it a lot of times. What's so your now. favorite of the tunes? Of the tunes, it's hard to say because there, there's so many moments. I think the second, uh, and Sky. Mm. And then there are the battles with Lovano, the ambivalence in Sanctus. Is it Sanctus? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also, Abel Crombie on the first
1: track, wonderful, yeah. it's
0: hard to choose, you know, and Ken's playing, then you have Michael yeah. Brecker, and then, you know, after three years or so, I met JT for the first time, at like my first record, player, so I asked him about the record, and yeah. he said, like, yeah, I had no idea that Joe Lovano and Michael Brecker would be on the record. Right. I really <laughs> <have>. <laughs> So that's, that's always nice if you get information like that. Well, know. we did
1: tracking in London with only John, Mark Johnson and Peter and Abercrombie. Right. Yeah. And then Kenny came in after the sessions and did his solos yeah. at Abbey Road. And then I went back to New York and did Joe and Mike because they couldn't make it out yeah. to the studio. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very special recording. I think it probably is my favorite of all my records, uh, partly because so many of the players on that record are no longer with us, and and, and that that was such a special time to be able to to have them participate in playing my music, giving their voice to those pieces. But trying to balance my desire to work with orchestra, uh, but also give the improviser a, a chance to to contribute a chapter and, yeah, they, and they stories. Could, they could play they and had, they had space. You know, logistically speaking, we did those those tracks um, with the rhythm section and the orchestra all at once and so, you know, John Abercrombie's solos, the um, piano solos, John Taylor's solos, they were all done live with the orchestra. They're <laughs> reacting to what they're hearing but an incredible amount of precision. in mm-hmm. their playing and then, you know, now play a solo. Right. Uh, and it's beautiful. So it, it's a really incredible amount of focus and heart. Granted, some of those first take solos that you get from these magnificent musicians are always the best mm-hmm. because that's when their heart opens up to, to what they hear and what they're feeling. You know we didn't really do that many takes uh, on that record so they must have it must have been the first or second takes on this. Wow. in this particular case there was a lot at stake with those live sessions and, and the you know, player just went in there and they, they did so well with all the solos they played with such hard, but just tremendous precision and delicacy john taylor's touch and the piano, you know with the whole orchestra and, do that but mm-hmm. yeah, that was a really great uh, experience to work with all those musicians in the studio. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Beautiful record. Thanks so much for your music and well, thank and you. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah it was great to meet you. Pleasure. Thank you. All right thank you. Thanks,
1: so